Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 48 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes for people who love history and a good story, but have neither the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. Our Pope today suffered from a disease he got from not keeping his feet warm. So it's only fitting that today's episode is sponsored by our friends over at Sock Religious, where you'll find all sorts of different saint-themed socks to spice up your Sunday best. They've got Pope Francis and St. John Paul II-themed socks, along with a ton of other excellent designs that make for awesome birthday presents, no matter the age, no matter if you're a guy or a gal, and honestly, could be just a nice treat-yourself gift. So head on over to SockReligious.com and say the podcast sent you at checkout. Thanks again to Sock Religious for sponsoring this episode. This week's Pope is one unlike any other of the 265 successors of St. Peter. Smart and eloquent with a pen, though he was, for most of his life he was best known as a smooth-talking womanizer and deadbeat dad, whose only goal was elevating his own career, all the way up to being crowned as the emperor's imperial poet. And then he met the Pope, who he hated, and everything changed. This week on the Popecast, it's the Pope who wrote a romance novel, Pope Pius II. Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini was born to a poor family of ancient nobility on October 18, 1405, near Siena, Italy. He was the oldest of Silvio and Vittoria's 18 children, though no more than 10 were alive at any one time, and only Aeneas and two of his sisters would live a full life, the others having succumbed at one point or another to the plague. Aeneas lived most of his childhood working in the fields with his father, but at 18 he entered the University of Siena where he immersed himself in studies and um, other more sensual pleasures. At the age of 20, he briefly considered entering a monastery, thanks to the preaching of St. Bernardine of Siena, but his friends convinced him to reconsider, preferring again the hedonistic to the monastic. He moved on to Florence for a couple of years to study poetry and classics, and then returned to Siena to study law before being snapped up as a personal secretary by Cardinal Capranica, a neighboring bishop passing through Siena on the way to the Council of Basel, also known as the Council of Florence, an ecumenical council of the church that in part was trying to resolve a dispute with what's become known as the conciliar movement, which believed that the supreme authority in the church rested with an ecumenical council, apart from and even against the sitting pope. But I digress. The sharp young Aeneas, still a layman who enjoyed being at the center of the action, arrived with the cardinal to the council in 1432, and thereafter was welcomed into the fold of a group so in opposition to the current pope, Eugene IV, that they formally broke away at one point and propped up an antipope, Amadeus of Savoy, or antipope Felix V. Aeneas, for his part, left Capernica after a couple of years after the latter went broke and joined up with two other bishops instead, Nicodemo della Scala, Bishop of Friesing, and Bartolomeo, Bishop of Novara, along with another cardinal, Albergati. It was the cardinal who would send Aeneas on a mission to Scotland in 1435. The mission itself isn't so much notable as the journey and Aeneas's actions upon arrival. The sea voyage was no cakewalk and got so bad that supposedly Aeneas at one point begged God that if he would let him live upon landing, he would walk barefoot from the port of arrival to the nearest shrine of Our Lady. The Catholic Encyclopedia recounts that he, quote, landed at Dunbar, and from the pilgrimage of ten miles through ice and snow to the sanctuary of Whitekirk, he contracted the gout from which he suffered for the rest of his life. 
end quote. It reads like someone who holds God at an arm's length only until they're in real trouble and then the prayers come. But even still, though, 10 miles barefoot is no joke. That story speaks to perhaps a well-equipped intellect, but a weak will on the part of Aeneas. He was still, even at 30 years old, apparently childish. Historian Will Durant, writing about Aeneas's early adulthood in general, notes that he, quote, seemed quite formless, merely a clever climber who had no sturdy principles, no goal but success. He passed from cause to cause without losing his heart and from woman to woman with a gay inconstancy that seemed to him and to most of his contemporaries the proper training for the obligations of matrimony. He wrote for a friend a love letter designed to melt the obstinacy of a girl who preferred marriage to fornication. Of his several illegitimate children, he sent one to his father, asking him to rear it and confessing that he was, quote, neither holier than David nor wiser than Solomon. The young devil could quote scripture to his purpose. Though his further advancement seemed to require taking holy orders, he shrank from the step because, like Augustine, he doubted his capacity for continence. He wrote against the celibacy of the clergy, end quote. Aeneas lived only for himself, and there was no stopping him at least until 1439, when he was assigned as master of ceremonies over the sham conclave that elected the antipope Felix V, who himself would soon thereafter appoint Aeneas as his personal secretary. Perhaps it was grace, or maybe just enough of a jolt that he began to see the writing on the wall. Maybe both. Whatever it was, Aeneas soon realized that setting oneself up in schismatic opposition to the organization that more or less ran the known world just wasn't that great of an idea. And so, a few years later at a meeting in Germany, Aeneas used his literary skill and smooth-talking to attract the attention of the emperor, Frederick III, and ditch his former post for a new one as imperial poet. A few months after that, he would take over as secretary to the imperial chancellor. It was a turning point for Aeneas, who was now pushing 40 and had left behind the life of schismatic opposition for the sake of padding his own pockets, though he still apparently lacked any real conviction other than personal gain. But over the ensuing three years, he would become more and more a fan of Pope Eugene IV, again, whom he once hated, and in 1445 was sent on an imperial mission to Rome to meet the Pope in person, which would change his life forever. Durant writes about the exchange, quote, He, being Aeneas, who had a hundred times written against Eugene, made his apology so eloquently that the kindly pontiff readily forgave him, and from that day... The soul of Aeneas belonged to Eugene. He became a priest in 1446, and at 41 reconciled himself to chastity. Henceforth, he lived an exemplary life. End quote. Now, express all the disbelief you want, but the rest of the future Pius II's life, which is well documented, is proof enough that this was true. For whatever reason, the old pope was able to humble and give rest to a man who had played things fast and loose, living life only for himself up to that point and apparently hadn't found the happiness he sought. He had been speaking those words of St. Augustine pre-conversion, Lord, grant me chastity and continence, but just not yet. And now he was finally ready to surrender. After that monumental meeting in which Aeneas apologized and confessed his allegiance to the Pope after living for so long in schism, he rekindled his love for his homeland of Italy after living in Germany for many years, and, now being a priest, was sent all over as a diplomat in service to the Pope. He was made bishop of his home diocese of Siena in 1449 and was elevated to cardinal in 1456. By the time he donned the red hat, Eugene had been dead nearly a decade and his successor, Nicholas V, had succumbed the year prior. Calixtus III 
was elected in 1455, but would only be in office himself for three years. The Conclave of 1458 was a battle between the French and Italian factions, and the Italians didn't want the papacy falling into the hands of foreigners, for any number of mostly illegitimate and self-serving fears. And so at any rate, they, including Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia, who would become one of the worst of the bad popes in Alexander VI, gave their votes to Aeneas, who chose the name Pius II. Now, brownie points for anyone who can guess the length of time it was between Pius I and Pius II. Go ahead and pause and make your guess. But a hint is that it's by far the longest gap between successive names in the history of the papacy. Pope St. Pius I was Pope number 10, having died in 155 AD. Pius II was Pope 210, being elected, drumroll, 1303 years later. His name choice, however, wasn't actually a nod to the first Pius, as was common, but rather was taken from the recurrent phrase of Virgil, that being Pius Aeneas. Now on its face, that might seem a little ostentatious, but Pius II took it seriously as a sign of that surrender and renunciation of his old way of life. He shirked all the trappings of a lavish papal lifestyle and instead far preferred to retire even for business meetings to the woods in the suburbs of Rome. And as Durant notes on the Pope naming himself after piety itself, quote, he lived up to it. He was pious, faithful to his duties, benevolent and indulgent, temperate and mild, and won the affection of even the cynics of Rome. He had outgrown the sensualism of his youth and was a morally model Pope. He made no attempt to conceal his early amours or his propaganda for the councils against the papacy, but he issued a bull of retraction in 1463, humbly asking God and the church to forgive his errors and sins, end quote. It seems that Pius's ability to subdue his will had finally caught up with his eloquence and smarts, but his body was now failing him. His gout had been with him now for two decades, and by 1458 added to that were kidney stones and a chronic cough. Though he was just 53 years old, he appeared as an old man. His friend and contemporary Plotina wrote that even sometimes, quote, nobody could tell that he was alive but by his voice, end quote. Unfortunately, it wasn't just his body that would continue to fail him. Despite Pius's best efforts, many of those whom he trusted to help carry out his mission and vision for his relatively short papacy would sadly fail him as well. The papacy of Pius II was focused mainly on raising up a new crusade against Muslim Turkish invaders, who were continually on the march and advancing ever closer to Rome itself. With their occupancy in Vienna as well as parts of Greece, Serbia, and Bosnia, the Pope wondered when the day would come that they crossed the Adriatic into Italy and thus did all he could to prevent such a thing from happening. Just a month after being crowned Pope, Pius invited all of Europe's Christian princes to a summit in Mantua, in northern Italy, to set out a game plan. But sadly, despite being, as Durant recounts, quote, arrayed in the most gorgeous vestments of his office, and borne through the city on a litter held up by the nobles and vassals of the church, end quote, no one came any great distance. Still fewer were willing to give great sums to the Pope or put up an army of their own troops. Not even Frederick III, the emperor who, who the Pope in his younger days had served so faithfully, came to his old friend's aid. In fact, he did the opposite and waged war on Hungary, the only nation who actually needed help to combat the Turks, simply in order to expand his own empire. That was at least the case for the first four months that Pius spent in Mantua, but thankfully the tide turned for the moment when a couple of influential princes changed their mind and convinced several others to follow suit. 
After some hemming and hawing about who would get the territory if they won, Pius had his agreement, and returned to Rome exhausted, but inexplicably hell-bent on preparing to lead the crusade himself. Still, as Durant notes, quote, his nature shrank from war, and he dreamed of a peaceful victory. There was a rumor that the Islamic Sultan, Muhammad II, was born to a Christian mother and was secretly partial to Christianity. And so Pius penned a letter in 1461, written in his most eloquent prose, in an attempt to coax the Muslim leader to convert and prevent bloodshed. The Pope wrote, quote, Were you to embrace Christianity, there is no prince on earth who would surpass you in glory or equal you in power. We would acknowledge you as emperor of the Greeks in the East, and what you have now taken by violence and retained by injustice would then be your lawful possession. Oh, what a fullness of peace it would be! The golden age of Augustus, sung by the poets, would return. If you were to join yourself to us, the whole of the East would soon turn to Christ. One will could give peace to the entire world, and that will is yours. End quote. Moving though it was, Muhammad never replied and so Pius turned back to collecting funds for the battle. He and the princes had agreed on a tithe of one-thirtieth from every Christian layman, one-twentieth from all of the Jewish people, and one-tenth from the clergy. But it turns out he didn't need it, because just the following year, in 1462, rich deposits of alum, the crucial mineral used in dyeing, tanning leather, and even for medicinal purposes, was found in papal territories northwest of Rome. A major operation was undertaken to mine the windfall, and before long the papal treasury was netting the equivalent of 14 million U.S. dollars per year, back then, making it the richest government in Italy. Given the timing of the find, Pius II declared it, as Durant recounts, quote, a miracle, a divine contribution to the Turkish war, end quote. But it turned out to be the last bit of good news for the venerable pontiff in his hope for crusade. From that moment, Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. With the exception of Venice, every prince and army who initially pledged their support for the Pope backed out in one form or another. Instead of going to battle, Milan said they'd simply help to restore what Venice lost in possessions and trade after the fact. Genoa apparently had their fingers crossed when they promised eight ships, and the Duke of Burgundy just chalked it up to bad timing. Even still, Pius II held out hope and pressed on, announcing that he would still venture to the Adriatic coast with the papal fleet to meet the Venetians, cross over to meet the Bosnian and Hungarian forces, and then personally lead the battle against the Muslim army. Despite much protest from his cardinals, who were lacking in spine, needless to say, Pius insisted and bid Rome farewell for the last time, not expecting himself to see it again on this side of eternity. The date he set sail for Ancona on the Adriatic coast was June 18th, 1464. He reached the meeting point in a month, but what he found would be his final defeat. I'll quote here directly from Durant's account of Pius's final days, because I could hardly say it better myself. Quote, when Pius reached Ancona, he found that most of the crusaders who had assembled there had deserted, weary of waiting and worried for food. Plague broke out in the Venetian fleet as it left the lagoons and caused a delay of 12 days. Broken-hearted by the vanishing of his armies, and the non-appearance of the Venetian armada, Pius languished at Ancona, sick to the verge of death. Finally, the fleet was sighted. The Pope sent his galleys to meet them, and had himself carried to a window from which he could see the harbor. As the combined navies came in sight, he died, August 14, 1464. Venice recalled her vessels. The remaining soldiers dispersed. 
the crusade collapsed. The brilliant and versatile climber, who had craved success after success, had reached the throne of thrones, had graced it with urbane scholarship and Christian benevolence, and had drunk to the dregs the gall of failure, humiliation, and defeat. But he had redeemed the errors of his youth with the devotion of his maturity, and had shamed the cynicism of his peers with the nobility of his death. End quote. As if that isn't legacy enough, as far as uh, Pius's legacy after death, there are a few things for which he's particularly notable. Catholics listening to this will recognize, of course, the great St. Catherine of Siena, who Pius II canonized in July of 1461. More broadly, Pius is the first and only pope to have written an autobiography called, shortly, Commentaries, while still serving as pope. And for that matter, he was the only pope to have written a literal romance novel prior to election. Of course, that was in his wilder days, but The Tale of Two Lovers, as it's titled, remains a fascinating piece, if nothing else than for being written by a future pope. He also, being a humanist, decided to overhaul the town of his birth, whose buildings were growing old and falling apart, as an experiment in city planning, which was apparently to be copied in many other Italian towns in the coming years. He had it completely rebuilt with a brand new cathedral and palace, declared it a city instead of a town, and renamed it Pienza, or City of Pius. And lastly, although he wasn't free from nepotism like so many of the other popes of that age, Pius still tried as he could to reform Roman processes and clerical practices that had grown all too lax. Sadly, though, the complex Roman web of patting each other's pockets was all a little too much to be reversed at the time. But he still had his moments of reprimanding those under him, and it's here that we'll close with a rather epic quote from Pius II himself. Here's the Pope addressing the cardinals in 1463, the year before his death. People say that we live for pleasure, accumulate wealth, bear ourselves arrogantly, ride on fat mules and handsome palfreys, trail the fringes of our cloaks after us, and show round plump faces beneath the red hat and the white hood, keep hounds for the chase, spend much on actors and parasites, and nothing in defense of the faith. And there is some truth in these words. Many among the cardinals and other officials of our court do lead this kind of life. If the truth be confessed, the luxury and pomp at our court is too great. And this is why we are so detested by the people, that they will not listen to us, even when we say what is just and reasonable. What do you think is to be done in such a shameful state of things? We must inquire by what means our predecessors won authority and consideration for the church. We must maintain that authority by the same means. Temperance, chastity, innocence, zeal for the faith, contempt of earth, the desire for martyrdom, have exalted the Roman Church and made her mistress of the world. She cannot maintain her position unless we follow in the footsteps of those who created it. It is not enough to profess the faith, to preach to the people, to denounce crime and extol virtue. We must make ourselves like those who offered their lives for the heritage of the Lord. We must suffer all things for the flock entrusted to our care, even unto death." End quote. 560 years ago, but sounds like something people still say today. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you're a faithful fan of the show and believe in the mission of what we're doing here, please consider joining us on Patreon 
at patreon.com slash thepopecast. Your patronage helps cover things like our hosting costs, the ability to produce these episodes, but also, of course, gets you things like early access to new episodes and other great freebies. Uh, it's, it's on a per-episode basis, so you're only charged when we release new content, and then the higher you give per episode, there's other uh, sweet perks that come along with it. So check it out, patreon.com slash the Popecast. Thanks again to our sponsors over at Sock Religious. That's again sockreligious.com and sell, tell them the Popecast sent you at checkout. And then lastly, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast over at iTunes. Hit share on your podcast or Spotify app, app and text this episode to a friend. And be sure to give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook if you aren't already, all at the Popecast for daily Pope quotes and old photos. So as we go today, let us each keep the story of Pius II ever in our minds remembering that no person is too far gone, no matter their vice. They're not too far gone to be forgiven, to reform their lives, and to cultivate virtue with the help of grace. No one. Until next time. Mm